Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Carl Gersons, the conservatory manager at Longwood Gardens in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Carl. Hey, Kathy. How are you? Good. How are you? It's it's a beautiful fall day out. It is more than beautiful. It's absolutely fantastic. 73 degrees here in Pennsylvania wow. and opening day for our chrysanthemum festival. I mean, how much better does that get? <laughs> Yeah, I didn't realize I was catching you on opening day itself. So um, now the conservatory is open to the public, correct? We've been open since about the end of June. Great. And you switch out the conservatory show how often? I like to tell people we are changing something every day. Now, this time of year, we're changing it pretty significantly because we're doing a major display change for Chrysanthemum Festival. In about a month, we'll be doing a major display change for Christmas. About a month after that, major display change for our winter displays. And then it kind of goes into really weekly, almost daily changeouts of something. Because we're using so many different kinds of plants. Some last three months, some last three weeks. And if you look at something like hyacinths, they might last three days, depending on the weather. Hmm. So Longwood Gardens definitely come back several times a year. And always something new in bloom. Well, that is definitely the truth. I've been coming back to Longwood for over 23 years, and each day has been an adventure for me. I've never been bored, that's for sure. Wow, 23 years. You're only like 25 years old, Carl. I know, I was born there. Yeah, <laughs> When did I spend all my time in Mississippi? But no, it's a fantastic place. And you know, having visited gardens all across the country, and I keep coming back to Longwood, it's just such an amazing spot for its location in the country and really for all the different aspects it holds. Fountains and conservatories and historic trees and annuals and perennials. I mean, it's really one-stop shopping for horticultural entertainment. You know, it's funny you mentioned the the fountain show, and I I love the fountain show and, you know, the coordinated music with it and, and sometimes the fireworks in the summer, but I totally forget about it. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I have the opposite of plant blindness. All I think about is the annual borders, the, the meadow, the, the walks in the, the wooded areas. And then of course the conservatory. And, you know, you bring up a really good point because, you know, I do like to do a lot of social media-ing. Is that a word? And how do you pick one picture for Longwood? I mean, is it going to be a huge tree that dates back to, you know, the Quaker family that started the whole place? Is it going to be the main fountain garden, the largest performance fountain, you know, in the nation? Is it going to be the conservatory? I mean, a flower show, 365 days of the year. I honestly don't know where you, you start to get this picture of Longwood. It's just so multifaceted. Mm-hmm. And it's a place that you're going to devote most of a day to visit. You're not just going to run in and run out. So those who have never been to Longwood Gardens who might be in our listening audience, what would you say um, they should do for a first time visit? Because it can be pretty overwhelming. That is a good point. And, you know, interestingly, I was visiting a few gardens this past week and I didn't have time to see everything that was there. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to concentrate on two parts of the garden, because maybe those parts were peaking that time of year. And I think for Longwood, you could always say the conservatory is going to have something dynamic happening, clearly. But then for outdoors, you know, you have to go to the meadow in September, because that's just fantastic. And you have to see the water lilies in July and August, because six-foot leaves just awe and amaze anyone. And then when you keep backing up, you've got the summertime annuals that are, you know, coming into flower in July. Then I go back to May, and you've got the wisteria, you've got the polonia trees that are just glorious shades of purple. And then you back up to April, and we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of bulbs that are blooming. And then you back up into March, and that's when, you know, the diehard gardeners are getting out there and looking at the tiniest little things creeping out of the ground. And you're so excited about a little snowdrop that's only two inches tall. And uh, there really isn't a time of the year that you can't find something expiring 
at Longwood or any other garden. And that's really, I think, the joy of our region. Because, you know, in the Mid-Atlantic, we have more gardens than anywhere else in the entire nation. And within just a two hours drive, you have countless gardens of all different sizes that really focus and showcase on a number of different things. So I could not be more thrilled to be in this region. Yeah, that's so true. We're so spoiled for public gardens in our area. And Longwood, for those who don't know, is Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, which is not too far outside of Philadelphia. Exactly. We are just over the border, about 20 minutes into Pennsylvania from the state of Maryland. And uh, just as you go north of us, we're going to have you know, fantastic gardens in America's Garden Capital, which is a wonderful website promoting our public gardens in the greater Philadelphia region. But uh, just to our south, only about 40 minutes is uh, Ledoux Gardens, wonderful topiary garden in uh, Maryland, which oftentimes, you know, it's not included in the D.C. area, but it's not included in the Philadelphia area. Poor little Ledoux. They're so fantastic. I was just there and I'm like, why don't yeah. more people visit this place? I love it. <laughs> well, it's funny because Ledoux, I was looking back at some of our back issues of Washington Gardener because we turned 15 this year for the magazine. And I was said that was one of, I think, our first day trips was Ledoux Gardens and we we try to claim it as our own it's you know it's upper Baltimore County but there are so many people in DC area who just still don't know it exists at all well I hear people in the DC area you know you talk about leaving the beltway and there's just something about getting on that highway that keeps you in your home sometimes But, and thank goodness Ledoux is reopened for those who are interested in it. Um, they had been shut for most of the COVID shutdown, but now they're taking reservations. And they are one of those gardens similar to Chanticleer up in Wayne, Pennsylvania, that is open seasonally. So it's basically March to November, but sometimes, you know, earlier, sometimes later. So definitely check before you uh, go and make that trip um, versus Longwood, which you are open every day of the year, even Christmas? Is that the case? Absolutely. So there are a couple days of the year that the conservatory is closed when we're installing our Christmas display and when we're taking the Christmas display out. But otherwise, we are going to be open 365 days of the year, the gardens, unless there is a snow emergency that has the roads shut down in the state. Uh, You really again, you'll find inspiration any day of the year. And as far as, you know, we didn't finish how long does it take to visit Longwood, um, easily four, five hours if you're going to walk the property from end to end. But that shouldn't sh- you know, make anyone fearful for visiting because you could easily spend an hour in the conservatory if you're driving by. You shouldn't miss an opportunity just because you don't have half a day. Because uh, just seeing a small bit of Longwood is better than missing an entire season, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And you have... Uh, places to rest and a cafe and you know can make easily make a day of it and then take some breaks so it's it's not you know it's not burdensome we'll just call it that (laughs) exactly and from now until november 15th when our chrysanthemum festival is running we are closed on tuesdays so that is something to keep in mind but um once the christmas display opens it is seven days a week we're back to almost almost complete normalcy and uh we'll be welcoming people into the gardens as a whole. And uh, it's just a fantastic time of year. Who knew the dead of winter, a fantastic time of year to be in the garden. Yeah. And are you doing uh, the full Christmas lights and and, uh, a show with the fountains for the holidays as well? So we will be having, having our open air theater with fountain displays throughout the season. Our main fountain garden will not be operating during the Christmas season. Uh, We are only going to be operating at 50% capacity. So as for the past several years, Longwood has been operating with time ticketing. So it is especially important this year that you make your reservation to visit Longwood early because I anticipate we are going to have more sold out days than ever before. Certainly you'll have more of an opportunity um, earlier in the week, earlier in the season, But if you really want to bring your family around the holidays, you should definitely make those reservations as quickly as those slots are made available on our website. Because with only 50% capacity, again, it's going to be a wonderful visit for everyone because you'll have plenty of room to space out, but we won't be able to allow as many people in there. 
Yeah, that's really good advice. I think a lot of the Christmas and holiday light show are scaling back or not taking place this year. So that'll be even more uh, pressure on Longwood Gardens. <laughs> we love pressure. We operate <laughs> under it every day of the year. In fact, I thrive on it. And uh, if there's not a challenge to work through, I'm like, what? What is this? It's too easy. But uh, we're very fortunate that even with our Chrysanthemum Festival, we have new things for this year that we've never done before. And I thought, how fortunate we are in the COVID year to be able to not only present the beauty and inspiration that we're known for, but to still add new things to the mix. So it just gives me chills thinking that I get to participate in an organization, a group of people that is just always moving forward. It's so wonderful. Mm, that that must be so rewarding. And I want to ask about the current conservatory shows. So the the mums that just opened, is there anything new that you would say, don't miss this for your Instagram photo op? I think the best photo op. Now, clearly our thousand bloom chrysanthemum is the showstopper. We have one plant with 1,350 flowers on it. This single plant, you know, 12 feet tall, 13 feet wide. Yes, it's one single plant. I mean, that's just amazing. But we've kind of been doing that for about eight or so years. But this year, brand new, we've never done it before, we're creating chrysanthemum meadows. So we have got a mix of fantastic forms. You know, chrysanthemums, they don't just look like those little golden pom-poms that you see at Trader Joe's or some of the other wonderful stores. These chrysanthemums we got from Japan over 30 years ago exhibition style chrysanthemums with flowers that are as big as your hand, maybe flowers that are completely frilled. We've got chrysanthemums that some people don't even recognize as chrysanthemums. And then the heights from eight inches all the way up to really the biggest one, 12 feet tall. So um, these are not your grandmother's chrysanthemums. That is for sure. Our meadows have more than 200 plants we have two small meadows, about 15 feet square. So I think it's a wonderful way to look at meadow style planting where you have varying heights, where you've got negative space in between certain things, where you've got textures that contrast and lay on top of that color. And it's just, you know, it's a technicolor world. And I absolutely am enthralled by color. I am attracted to it like a moth to a flame and I just can't get enough of it. And this year, our Chrysanthemum Festival really has a lot of color. It really, it's a feast for the eyes. Hmm. And you can't tell that at all from your Instagram or your Facebook <laughs> <laughs> that you're a color fiend. You might want to put um, some sunglasses on. Yeah, sometimes yeah. I'm a little bit addicted to color. I can't help it. He's got the he's got the color obsession. So is there a color theme to this year's mom show? It's interesting you mentioned that because uh, we, when planning it, we did not have a color theme because the, the thing that really guides us when creating our chrysanthemum festival, it's really what plants we have available. You know, we have more than 200 different cultivars of these exhibition style chrysanthemums. So in order to have enough cuttings for the next year, you have to have enough stock plants. So we've already got 200 pots, one each just so we have the plants. Imagine if I needed 400 plants for one of my displays, which needed five cuttings per pot. That's 2,000 cuttings, isn't it? I'm not good with numbers. But either way, we need a lot of stock plants. So we have to make those plans almost multiple years in advance. So sometimes you could have problems with plants, you know, as we all do in our gardens, challenges happen midway through the growing season. So sometimes that will dictate which plants are available for us to use. But I had several people tell me this year, there sure are a lot of yellow chrysanthemums this year. <laughs> so perhaps we have subliminally <laughs> brought in the color yellow, which has been marvelous. Cause you know, the past couple mornings up here in Southeastern Pennsylvania have been very foggy, very misty, which I love that. But when you walk in the conservatory and you have the flowers giving you that sunshine glow, it's just, you know, that much more happiness and excitement you can have before the sun burns through the clouds and you have it outdoors as well. Hmm. And I, 
I don't know if you know, coincidentally, that um, chrysanthemum in uh, China, that they call it the golden flower. Ah, uh, yes, that is exactly right. And I guess I was telling a student this morning, too, I think you know, yellow chrysanthemums are probably a little more tough, a little more aggressive and hardy. Uh, certainly, we have them in reds, pinks, whites, purples, everything in between. But it seems like the yellow ones just grow better. And mm -hmm. um, maybe that goes back to, you know, the ancient days of China. Yeah, and then uh, I was just looking up the Latin, and chrysos translates as gold, mm. uh, that which is the original color of the first chrysanthemums, and anthos, of course, is flower, so chrysanthemum. Well, how <laughs> how appropriate. Now we can tell everyone we planned for it to be a golden year. <laughs> yeah, even though we usually just use the mum part of the name, which is funny. It's true, though, and that's the other thing I really like to tell people about these chrysanthemums, you know, the history behind them, the story, the amount of labor we put into them. Because some people, when you visit Longwood, you're just there to enjoy the day. You're there with your friend, your spouse. You just want to hang out, and you just walk by the flowers and think, oh, pretty. But if you have a moment to stop someone, and heaven help you if it's me, because I'll talk your head off about how fantastic these plants are, and you'll get the entire story, and you really do walk away with an appreciation of what we've started to think of as really a common plant. I mean, my great aunt down in Mississippi, she was a florist, and she mostly did funeral work, and she always used chrysanthemums and carnations, which... I really liked because they each have a fragrance, which I loved as a child because it was my first introduction to flowers. They're both very long lived. I mean, I love flowers that last a long time in a vase, but because they're so tough, then they become very popular. And of course they become overused and then people start to lose interest. They're not perhaps as valued as much anymore. But uh, when you come to Longwood, these definitely will not be the chrysanthemums that you have seen before. They are enough to fill your Instagram pages for days to come. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, let's move to your childhood in Mississippi that you alluded to a little bit. And how did you get started, aside from having that florist aunt, um, in gardening? Did you? Did you garden at home or was there somebody else that you followed and introduced you into the whole green industry? Wow. I mean, I knew I wanted to be in gardening since literally sixth grade. I have a Polaroid of my grandmother and I standing at a flower bed that we built on the farm where we had beautiful orange marigolds and luscious pink petunias. And to this day, the orange and pink color combination, it's become very popular. But you know, back then, it was very, very edgy. But I grew up on a cotton farm in Mississippi, and uh, it took about 20 minutes to get off the farm. So it was quite large, and uh, my grandparents were pretty much the only ones there. Uh, my grandmother immigrated from Europe in 1950, didn't speak English very well. So she had a practical appreciation for vegetable gardening especially, but even propagation. She taught me how to take cuttings and how to propagate little kalanchoes in the windowsill. And uh, probably had about 25 to 50 houseplants easily in elementary school because in sixth grade, I got my first greenhouse. And it was just a little igloo-looking thing, about six feet tall, 10 feet across, looked like a plastic tent. But I could put a little heater in there, and I put my overflow houseplants in. And then I think one of my other aunts who lived in Chicago came down for a visit, and she saw this little you know, greenhouse igloo filled with plants. And she thought, I think this kid has a thing for flowers and plants. Little did she know that thing was going to turn into an all-out obsession. I got a real greenhouse, a fiberglass greenhouse made of actual wood when I was in ninth grade, uh, another one in 11th grade. I joined them together in 12th grade. I built a third propagation house my first year of college and was growing countless cuttings and seeds. I mean, the two-acre garden I grew up on in Mississippi was just filled with colorful annuals. And we're talking things that love the heat. You know, catharanthus, celosia, hibiscus, cannas, cotton, all these things I'm growing from either seeds or tiny little propagules, uh, really from beginning to end. I saw the plant get started. I put it in the garden. I nurtured it from beginning to end. 
I dug up things, I overwintered them, and I was doing all of this before I even knew that there were careers in horticulture. And uh, fortunately, I was sent to a horticulture summer seminar at Mississippi State University, where they just expose you to what you could do in horticulture. Maybe you want to go into turf grass management. Maybe you like viticulture and you want to make wines. Maybe you want to be a florist. Maybe you'd like to work in fruits and vegetables. Uh, in the science end of things, maybe you want to go into lab work and work in a tissue culture lab. And all these things, we had four hour lessons, I guess, you know, morning and afternoon. You stayed for like a four day long weekend. You got to feel what a college campus was like. They were really just trying to hook you into going to school there. And uh, they did a good job because I got hooked. And I went to Mississippi State University without looking at any other colleges because I had no clue anybody else even did horticulture. So aside from my grandmother, I'd never met any professionals in horticulture. I had never been to a public garden by that point. And then I bebop off to college. And of course, every weekend I'm going home, taking care of my greenhouses. My poor mother, she was babysitting the plants while I was in college. And uh, in college, you meet other people. You join the horticulture club. And in the horticulture club, they said, um, we're taking a, a field trip up to, or rather, to Hawaii. You know, we're taking the entire horticulture club to Hawaii. You should join the horticulture club so that you too could go on one of these fantastic trips. And I thought, wow, that does sound pretty dramatic, pretty exciting. So I joined the horticulture club and I'm potting my plants. I'm attending every meeting. I'm being as participatory as I possibly can. And they're like, yes, you get to go on our trip this coming year. Are you ready? I'm like, yes, I'm so excited. I've never been on a plane before. I've never seen you know, the Pacific Ocean. They're like, oh, no, we went to Hawaii last year. This year we're going to Nashville. And I'm like, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> I mean, talk about my plant just froze. I mean, I was as wilted as a little seedling in the sunshine. But either way, I went to Nashville. We competed, met tons of other people. And that's really when my eyes were open that this horticulture thing is a lot bigger than what I knew in Mississippi. Uh, there were people I met from Oregon. I'd only heard of Oregon. I had no idea that there were places with cool summers. You know, we went out to visit some of these folks for a national meeting, and I took my bathing suit because I thought we were going to go to the Pacific Ocean in August. Yeah, it was 52 degrees on the Pacific beaches. <laughs> had no concept. I'm like, what is this thing called a fuchsia? Never seen this in Mississippi. You know, those things are dead by March because it's already 90 degrees. So I knew all my little tropical plants from Mississippi but I had no concept about a cool summer. And then as I you know, continued my career, I had no concept of what a dry summer was. When you look at Mediterranean climates, and I had no idea what poor rocky soil was because you know, I grew up in some of the richest farmland in this nation. And of course I thought everyone was like me. You know, we all have the same gardening background. We all have the same climate and the same soil. And oh my gosh, it has been a fantastic ride meeting so many different people from literally all over the world. And I just have a thirst. I have a hunger for just getting that knowledge, that information, hearing their stories, because it's just so fascinating. You know, we, we all can grow the same plants, but my challenges are totally different than yours. And whenever I visit people from other states or countries, I'm like, what's your biggest invasive pest? Because oftentimes it's going to be something I probably planted in my own garden. And uh, who knew that horticulture could have taken me literally around the world to 30 countries and 3,000 gardens and countless inspirational people along the way. And, you know, hey, I'm only halfway through this career I have. So I'm looking forward to the next half. Hmm. Yeah, it's really great to follow your travels online and it's so true that you know that's why i run regional garden magazine all gardening is local so it's kind of a frustration um in this internet age that you know a reader or somebody will look up some gardening advice about one plant and it'll say it's a super aggressive spreader and for us you know it barely lives or the exact opposite we have obviously some aggressively spreading plants for for other people would be cherished in their garden and that is so true. And I know whenever I post things on social media, because I'm really looking for beauty, first and foremost. And because I am traveling so widespread, you know, you'll see something like, 
Ampelopsis, the porcelain berry, which is the most beautiful bluish berry I've ever seen. And I love the variegated foliage, and it's such a beautiful way that it clambers through other things. But when you bring it to the Mid-Atlantic region, oh my goodness, it is more than a thug. It is absolutely horrendous. So sometimes it's hard to even appreciate those beautiful things because you know what they're going to do in your garden. And I only speak from experience because I mistakenly planted that 20 years ago. So I think I've just about <laughs> weeded them all out of my garden now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the birds have planted them for me. Oh, <laughs> so I hope I'm they didn't still, come from my garden. No, <laughs> still <laughs> battling them. I think they came from the, the railroad tracks oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> up, up the street. Um, so speaking of your travels, uh, this year of COVID, I would imagine, obviously, that's slowed down a bit. But are you doing, say, weekend trips or road trips? It's interesting you say that because uh, I started Instagram a couple years ago because I needed a quick way to remember what I did last weekend. Because it's not because I'm going out and partying with the plants too much. I really am. I'm seeing a lot of places. I'm meeting a lot of people. And I don't remember what I did three weeks ago. So I look through Instagram and it's literally a snapshot of the day. And I can quickly scroll through. And I was doing that for this year because I thought, you're right, this is a COVID year. You know, I've not been able to fly overseas like I normally would have. And, you know, certainly garden tours have been canceled, whether they be in the Southeast or the Pacific Northwest or the Garden Conservancy tours in our regions. So I was like, I wonder what my count is. And interestingly, I really haven't slowed down this year. It has been more challenging to find gardens that are open. And I would say it's almost almost been more pleasurable because there's nobody on the road when you're road tripping. Granite traffic is starting to build now. And when you visit the gardens, you have to have a reservation. So that means you're going to be with fewer people. So they're easier pictures to take without that hot pink sweater down in the distance. Not that I was speaking to anyone specifically. But uh, <laughs> I haven't slowed down at all. I've, I think I've had more than 100 days of garden visiting since January 1st. And uh, I've only taken one international trip this year to Cuba back in January. So that's the only time my passport has been opened. But otherwise, it's been, you know, quote, local. And the farthest I've been is, you know, Wisconsin and Minnesota for the summer. And I've taken, I think, two plane trips. And they were kind of early on. So literally, the planes were empty. I mean, nobody else was on the plane. So I didn't feel that that was you know, an unsafe situation when literally there's no one around me for six feet. And once you get to the garden, you know, you're enjoying the garden on your own because there's hardly anyone else there. So this year has been, you know, it's odd to say it's almost been enjoyable because it's forced me to enjoy the United States. You know, I visited all 50 states by, I think it's 2008. And now I'm getting to go back to a few places that I've perhaps only been one time. And of course, visiting a garden at a different season, you might as well be, you know, a new person because you've never seen this blooming in this location at that time. So the excitement has always been there. And I I really haven't slowed down. So I've I've really been, again, I hate to say enjoying myself this year, but uh, you know, I think from sharing these images that I've taken on these trips, I hear so many people give me feedback about you know, that's the moment in the day where they can just tune everything else out and they feel like they were in the garden as well. They feel like they took the trip without leaving their home, without feeling unsafe about, you know, being around other people. And uh, I think that has really given me a lot of strength and energy to keep doing these types of things because it's not just me selfishly enjoying the garden. Uh, Certainly I'm putting it on Instagram so I can remember where I was. But at the same time, people are truly getting enjoyment and inspiration, hopefully ideas for the future. And I know as I browse through social media profiles, I'll oftentimes put things on my calendar for next year. Reminder, spider lilies are blooming the end of August in North Carolina. I want to go see fields of Lycoris radiata. It's one of my dreams. I had those in Mississippi. I want them again. And then perhaps there are other plants, you know, when the colchicums bloom at Chanticleer, when the tulips bloom at Sherwood Gardens in Baltimore, obviously when the cherries are blooming in D.C. I mean, there are just moments around our region that you don't want to miss. And sometimes they're so short that 
for me, I have to put it on my calendar to make sure I don't plan something that would make me miss it. And you mentioned, obviously, how gardens change over seasons and there's different things to see. Um, and we wanted to talk about in this episode, fabulous foliage first. Um, so I want to ask in a garden, when you first arrive, when you first do like your first scan over, um, are you attracted to the flowers first or to the foliage combinations? That is so challenging for me to answer. It's like, which is your favorite child? I'm like, well, the one that's in front of me, of course. Um, of course, flowers, you can't beat them. They're always pretty. They're always colorful, usually. Uh, but foliage really gives me that longevity that I love so much. And I've really started to, I think, fall in love with foliage even more than flowers because it gives me more. I think about one of my favorite foliage plants. Um, it's one of those proven winners, Spirea. Um, goodness, all those fun names that they have for those things. I don't even know them anymore. Double take candy corn something. But it's got like reddish pink new growth on top of golden foliage that starts the day it sprouts. And then you get those pink flowers in the summer. You shear it back a little bit. You get some more new growth. I mean, from a distance, it looks like it's blooming. It was at least 10 years ago, I'm visiting one of the arboretums in Ohio, and this was like June. I call it June gloom because, you know, all the flowers are done. There's no trees blooming. There's generally not a lot of shrubs blooming. I found that to be untrue because there's things blooming all the time, but there's nothing flashy. It's not like, you know, cherry trees blooming in June. So I'm walking through this arboretum, and I swear from 300 yards away, I'm like, what is that? There is a shrub in full bloom. I took off over there, and it was nothing more than a forsythia with gold foliage. But there was so much foliage on that forsythia. And I love forsythia. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's so early blooming, that cheery color. I could park me a beach chair right in front of that shrub and enjoy that till the last flower fell off. But then imagine foliage coming on the exact same exciting shade of yellow. And then it lasts literally for the entire next season. And then if you're lucky and have a great fall, you'll have some purple fall color on those things. I mean, that's literal amazement from the moment it sprouts until the last leaf falls off. You tell me a flowering plant that gives you that much pleasure. Aside from marigolds, marigolds are pretty amazing, and I don't have any prejudice against the common marigold because I love that color. I literally just feast on it. And I see these poor gardeners who aren't happy with things like that, and it really pains me because I'm like, this is such a simple pleasure to have these flowers that bloom forever or to have these foliages that last the entire season so i guess if i had to pick one i would totally pick foliage i mean hands down because i want to have the enjoyment from springtime into fall you know i hear some people talk about well flowers you get to anticipate them coming and it's that ephemeral nature of them and i hate to say it but i'm just a glutton for color i just want more of it i can't have enough of it i want it all and i want it all the time <laughs> i feel like some disney villain <laughs> <laughs> well i did just double check and you're correct on the name it's double play candy corn spirea oh my gosh um, isn't that crazy it's so long yes and my favorite from that series is the double play blue kazoo spirea which <laughs> it, it's kind of on the opposite spectrum it's more of like a really aquamarine um, type of leaf to it come it has like a bluish cast almost like a father gila um bluish cast to it and that one is really nice in the springtime especially and again i mean show me a plant that isn't beautiful i mean i i unfortunately i love everything but you know when i planted my home garden over 20 years ago i called a, a horticultural woodland because, of course, I overplanted like most passionate plant people do. And now all the trees have grown up and they've shaded out literally everything else. So now it's a horticultural woodland. But the trees are variegated or they're silver or they have red leaves or they have golden leaves. And it's like a kaleidoscopic forest. And even with fall color happening in the woodland behind my garden, I mean, there's just color everywhere and there isn't a flower to be seen. I might have some, I'm trying to think what I even still have that blooms in the garden that hasn't been shaded out. A few lilies, some Asiatic lilies. 
I think I put out some gomfrina this year in a spot that I took one tree out. But otherwise, I get my foliage fix, this colorful calamity, some people call it. I mean, it's all from foliage. So, yeah, I definitely love foliage. So, sorry, flowers. Maybe next time. <laughs> but, you know, I get flowers at Longwood. So, mm-hmm. I'm really lucky because I get to go to work and get flowers, and I get to come home and get foliage. So, I really couldn't be any luckier. And when you planted your home garden with foliage choices in mind, did you do a specific color scheme of yellows, reds, and changing, or was it just uh, all happenstance? Oh, I'm a little too, I'm a little too organic for that. You know, at work, I have to be very thoughtful. I have to plan things out. I have to think how this is going to work with that. But when I get home, I want to have the complete opposite. So it is literally your passion exploding. So what do I love the most today? And I remember the first tree I planted was uh, Metasequoia Ogon, the gold-leafed Metasequoia. And I bought it from Wayside Gardens. You remember the catalog that would come in the winter when you're hunkered down and you can't go outside and you're like, okay, I'll pay $150 for a stick. Yeah, and, I've, been, I've definitely been seduced by Wayside in the yeah, past. And they did a good job because <laughs> I spent the $150 on a stick. And I have my golden metasequoia in my back garden now that's probably 40 feet tall. And I can see it when I'm rounding the corner now. It's literally three quarters the size of the forest behind it. And it gives me such joy to see that tree. It was well worth every meal I had to skimp on when I was a young starting out gardener, because that was a lot of money back then. And uh, it's just fantastic. So I don't have any theme. I mean, I would sit down with the forest farm book. You know, it's a book. It was 400 pages, black and white, small print, no pictures. And it was just exciting to read those descriptions because I had no idea you could have, you know, the very first tree I fell in love with, uh, Circus forest pansy. Saw that in Oregon when I was 21 years old. Had no clue there were colored foliage trees in the world at all. And I'm like, a purple tree? What? Are you serious? Because we didn't have purple beaches in Mississippi. So to see a purple redbud, I literally fell in love. So that was the second tree I planted in my garden, a trio of purple redbuds. Then I planted a variegated uh, Acer Nagundo flamingo. And I had no idea all the negative connotations people have with Acer Nagundo. You know, it's a weed. No one likes box elder. I'm like, look how beautiful this foliage is. It's pink, pink new growth. Oh my gosh. I loved that tree then and I love it now, even though those leaves get all spotted up. Then I planted a golden catalpa because you just need big leaves. And I learned how to coppice things. You know, my poor neighbors, I live in a planned community. I was out there pruning the catalpa earlier this year and it was beautiful. 12 feet tall, huge golden leaves. And I'm out there with the saw chopping it flat to the ground. And these people about to sell their house are like, what are you doing? I'm like you have to chop this thing flat to the ground every couple of years. Otherwise it's going to take over. But I love my golden catalpa. And uh, what else do I absolutely love in my garden? Golden or excuse me, silver camisiparis. Um, you just can't beat that foliage, the fragrance this time of year. And then silver cupressus, cupressus arizonica. You know, when you cut that foliage for wreath making or for putting on mantles, it kind of freeze dries. It stays the exact same shape for the entire winter. It doesn't turn brown, at least mine doesn't. And that's one of my favorite, you know, foliages for bringing indoors. And uh, of course, being from Mississippi, I had to have a Southern Magnolia and I didn't think they would survive up here. Because, you know, I didn't do any research. Uh, when you grow up in Mississippi, unfortunately, they teach you that the North, you know, it's a scary place. You don't want to go there. <laughs> like, apparently, you know, no one can survive the North. Plants can't either. So I needed, you know, my little Southern Magnolia. Little did I know, they're perfectly hardy. I've seen those things all the way up into Massachusetts. But I planted Edith Bogue against the south side of my house. And I've been espaliering it for 20 years. It's now two stories high. It's now really a it's a health hazard for me to crawl up there and espalier this thing. But uh, it's, you know, it makes me chuckle when I look back at just, you know, how little I knew back then of this region. And, of course, you know, the Internet wasn't nearly as big. Social media hadn't even been invented. So I'm just trying what I love. And, uh these days, people can skip the mistakes I made of planting things like gooseneck loose strife. Not, not good. <laughs> no. 
Oh, so I was going to say on the espalier, um, for some of our listeners who might be beginning gardeners, do you want to define that technique? Oh, my goodness, espalier. It's one of those fancy things. If you're from Mississippi, it's espalier. And I can turn on my southern accent if you want me to. But uh, espalier, you're growing a plant flat against something. So at Longway Gardens, we are espaliering nectarines. We're growing them flat, in essence, against a fence. So they are literally, you know, two-dimensional. And you're growing the exact same number of leaves, the exact same number of branches, in turn, getting the exact same number of fruits in literally half the space. So when I did this with my magnolia, I wanted to plant it really close to the house because I'm not afraid of a tree getting into my foundation. I think that's, you know, silliness. I'm sure it does happen, but not here. And this tree is literally six inches from the foundation of my house, and it is flat against the wall, and I have tied it all the way up and I prune it within 12 inches away from the building itself. So it's just kind of like a, a pancake, a magnolia pancake against the side of my house. And this past year, because I, I've been traveling a lot, really the past five years, I haven't been in my garden for the past two years, you could say. I mean, who can leave their garden for two years and still have it look the way they want it to? But I did. And my magnolia needed some serious pruning. So this Magnolia grandiflora, that's espalier, grown flat against the side of my house, got every single leaf cut off of it. I trimmed it back to literally bones, bare wood, twigs, and that was back in June. And it has completely reflushed into a beautiful foliage-covered shape. So the only risk I have now is if we have an early frost, which doesn't look like that's happening, so that new growth will harden off, and I'm going to have, you know, a beautifully shaped magnolia for the entire winter for my neighbors to look at. <laughs> nice. I know my favorite uh, almost identical treatment is at Hillwood Gardens, where they've espaliered a, a magnolia onto the side of the house. And that's been for several decades, so no damage to the structure there either. Absolutely. And magnolias are typically you know, shallow rooted anyway. If you've got an old magnolia, you've probably seen the roots on top of the ground, the lawnmower unfortunately hitting them. So uh, they're not going to have this you know, scary taproot that's going to get into your sewer system. Because remember, we also don't generally have terracotta pipes in the ground anymore that leak water. If you've got a PVC pipe, you know, it's probably not cracked. There's not water leaking. Therefore, roots aren't going to get into it. So we don't have to be too concerned about these things. And, you know, I grew up in a house that was built in 1832, and it, you know, had trees all around it. Clearly it survived for quite a while. And I see people with their homes in the forest, the actual forest, and, you know, their houses are surviving. So the benefit of planting trees far outweighs the minuscule potential of that tree causing you problems. And, you know, we watch the news and we see during an ice storm, the trees come down. We see during a windstorm, the trees come down. But they're not showing you the 364 days in between that where you are truly getting pleasure and enjoyment. You're getting your blood pressure dropped. You're getting shade from the hot summer sun. You're getting fall color. You're getting birds flying by and the wind fluttering through them. I mean, how many people have a hammock where they just lay up and look at the trees? And I think, you know, people who live in cities that don't have trees, that's where our problems are occurring. If you live in, you know, a garden, if you live in a wooded area, if you've got plants around you, you're calm. There are very few people that are, you know, going crazy in a garden. And people, you know, I visit gardens all over. And my mother's like, be, you be careful now. I'm thinking I'm going to a garden. You never, <laughs> you never see people going postal in the garden. I mean, come on. <laughs> mm-hmm. So really, trees are amazing, and you know, this time of year, especially with the fall color, you know, here in the Mid Atlantic, all the way to the Northeast, we are so lucky. I have Googled where else in the world can I get fall color like this, and there's nowhere else. I mean, right now, my black gum, my Nissa sylvatica, is in full color. I mean, today is like peak color for my garden. I look in my backyard and I can see the hepticodium with those red calices uh, in full color with my golden foliage of liquid amber cultivar warples done right behind it. And it's just a moment that I am so excited to see every year. So maybe it's like, you know, when the tulips bloom, people are excited waiting for that moment. 
I'm waiting for the leaves to turn because it's not just 10 tulips I planted. It's the entire forest around me. It is every road I drive down. You know, that one sugar maple that just colors up so perfectly. That red maple. This year, the crepe myrtles literally have red foliage on them. I have to go take a picture of them. I've never seen so much red in crepe myrtles. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just so exciting when that foliage happens in our region that uh, I just want to duplicate it throughout the rest of the year. So that's why I plant colored foliage everywhere I go. I mean, and it's not only trees. We now have, thank you, Proven Winners, we've got shrubs. And now, thank you, Walter's Gardens, we've got perennials. And thank you, Landcraft Environments, we've got annuals that give us foliage color. And uh, it's it's a little overkill. But, you know, I grew up in Mississippi. And I went to the Baptist church, and we had the Baptist and the Methodist, you know, get together. And whenever you get those two together, the food, it's insane. You've got so much food. It doesn't make any sense, and you just overdose on food, which is so enjoyable. So I like to do that in the garden, too. I like to overdose on color. Look at this red and that yellow and that orange and this purple, and they're all together. It's like piling your plate up at the Baptist and Methodist social. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I would think that it would look like a really interwoven tapestry, like a quilt of you know, all those different textures and colors and fabrics woven together in your garden. It's absolutely dreamy. I had a chance to go to Morocco a couple years ago. And, you know, Morocco is so colorful and not necessarily from the plants because, you know, it's kind of Mediterranean semi-desert. But the colors, you know, the people are so colorful and they love color. The houses are different colors. Their clothing is different colors. The spices are different colors. And it was just so wonderful for me being someone who's passionate about color that you could see color in something other than plants because you know i surround myself with plants in my work in my home and in my vacations usually and now i'm finding a different outlet for color and you're right it's the fabrics and for people who are much more balanced than i am that already know about things like fabrics you're already appreciating the beauty of fabrics and how those colors and textures weave together and I've just been doing it with plants all my life, so I'm very excited to start exploring more of the color palette. Of course, I have to also admit, inside my home, every room is painted a different color. So uh, red, blue, yellow, orange, purple. Yeah, my house. (laughs) It doesn't look like a Crayola crayon box because you can't see them all together. But I literally just love surrounding myself with color. So uh, why wouldn't I do it in the garden as well? Mm Mm-hmm. So you've touched on some favorite trees and a few shrubs. Um, How about some grasses and perennials that you love just for their foliage? Oh, my gosh. Where do we even start? Let's start with the most fantastic name, Lamprocapnos spectabilis. Now, you might recognize that as the old-fashioned bleeding heart, and you probably learned it as Dicentra. But to the plant nerds out there, the names have changed. So our... American plants are now Dicentra, and the Asian relatives are Lamprocapnos. So that old-fashioned bleeding heart, and I saw this years ago in Vancouver, Canada, thing was three feet tall, bright golden foliage with those little pink hearts hanging off of it. And literally, that was just a moment where I just thought I was going to flip. I mean, so much color in the early spring garden, because you know those things bloom so early in the season. So I think Lamprocapno is probably one of my favorites. Then I go to Convalaria, and I was at the Coastal Maine Botanic Garden, and there's a Convalaria, Lily of the Valley, uh, called Fernwood's Golden Slipper. And uh, it's a solid gold leaf Convalaria. So you've probably got a field of Lily of the Valley in your garden, if you're lucky. My patch is so tiny, it's ridiculous. But when I was at the Coastal Maine Botanic Garden, they had a mix of the gold-leafed Lily of the Valley, and intertwining through it, the variegated convalaria. So you've got these striped leaves going in amongst the golden leaves. And then, of course, the fragrance and those cute little flowers. I mean, it was just a moment that I was, I was kind of excited there, let me tell you. But uh, beyond that, I am loving the new hibiscus that are coming out. Again, I mentioned Walter's Gardens. They are wizards out there in Michigan, creating these fantastic plants for us. I mean, it's like like a mail-order spouse. You know, you just punch in what you want and poof, it arrives in the Amazon box. And they've got these hibiscus now. You know, they're kind of short, like midnight 
something is the name. I'm not a very good uh, advocate for selling plants, obviously. But these huge red flowers are 10 inches across on dark purple foliage. So even before the flowers pop, you've got a purple accent in your garden. And I have to admit, yeah, I teach some classes at Longwood. I'm teaching the herbaceous annuals and perennials. So I'm trying to teach the students that perennial borders, you know, they're important. We need them. Everyone probably has access to a perennial border. But in the springtime, when the things first start sprouting, if all of your herbaceous perennials are green, it kind of looks like you got some weeds out there. So you have to start recognizing what they look like when they start growing, because they're not going to bloom some for a few months. So if you have red-foliaged digitalis, if you think about Penstemon digitalis, Husker red, you know, sprouts red in the garden, then at least you've got a contrast. How about eucomus, you know, the pineapple lily, uh, something like oakhurst or sparkling burgundy, again, that red new growth when it comes out. Uh, you mix in a few annuals like gomfrina. Uh, is it cosmic flare, solar flare has that gold foliage with the hot pink little ball on top of it. Those can mix with your other perennials that are generally green. You know, maybe there isn't a colored foliage counterpart, but uh, I really don't think there's a foliage plant I haven't fallen in love with. And uh, so many times too, you know, I've run out of room in my own garden, so I still love buying plants. And I'll buy plants and you know give to my volunteers at Longwood. I'm like, hey, you've got a big garden. How about you plant this and I'll come visit it and see how well it's growing because I just want to see it growing somewhere. But uh, I just get so excited seeing you know, these things, you know, just absolutely thriving. They're fantastic. And what do you think of some of the new tall sedums like neon and some of the ones that have really dark foliage? It's interesting. And I was talking to Hans Hansen. He's one of the plant breeders at Walters Gardens in Michigan. And I said, you know, things like echinacea, years ago, those wonderful names like tomato soup and mac and cheese, so fun, but they're really weak. And it really burned a lot of gardeners because, you know, we were excited for something new. We all bought them and none of them survived. I mean, does anyone have any mac and cheese left in their garden? So uh, the same is true with some of these sedums, or now they're calling them hylotelephiums, I guess. And I said, the first ones that came out with the dark foliage, I went nuts over. You know, Frosty Morn, the first variegated one, I had that in my garden. And they're absolutely dreadful. And uh, these days, they have come up with much better um, solutions for us. So even Chris Hansen, he's out in Michigan as well, breeding tons of those little chick charm, echeverias. And he's breeding the sun sparkler sedums, which actually are short versus tall. But the foliage color is fantastic. And they're great garden plants. And I really want to encourage people to drop your prejudices about plants. You know, oh, you can't grow that purple leaf sedum. Yes, you can. We now have better cultivars. We can't judge these plants on the first year they were introduced. And uh, I always look back at, you know, I put my favorite plants at the front door. You know, I keep rotating my favorite plants to the front door. And, uh, yeah, you know, what was my favorite plant five years ago? It's changed. Now there's something new. And it's really hard in the garden because, you know, maybe you had a plant from 15 years ago, but now there's truly a better version out there. And of course, it's always a case of buyer beware. You have to be very cognizant of how well is this going to do in my garden? Just because they say it does well, maybe they're trying to grow it in Portland. That's not the same as Washington, D.C. They don't even know what summer heat is. So you do have to check more local sources to see how well they do in your garden. But I am a strong proponent of looking at the new plants, asking around, checking social media. You know, just because a nursery sells it, if it's a reputable garden center, they've hopefully done the research for you. But you want to ask around. But at the same time, you know, have that sense of adventure. Try something new. See what it'll do. You know, try one. Try five. Try 20. <laughs> yeah and it's so true that uh especially with the hookra and all the new varieties that are out of hookra and that's a fabulous foliage plant to have um i have it pretty much year round in containers in my garden especially the the dark purple ones that if it's coming from a breeding program out of the pacific northwest isn't too happy in our mid-atlantic hot and humid summers but the ones that come out of the breeding programs out of uh, Georgia and the South are doing much better for us. 
you definitely bring up a good point there. And it's also funny you mentioned in containers. I have found these new hookahs do better in containers for me than they do in the ground. I mm-hmm. mean, I've had them for multiple yep. years in containers above ground. And this past spring, I planted all my deck containers with heuchera. <laughs> Literally, I have red, purple, silver, green, big leaf, small leaf, fantastic foliages on your deck. Just because I knew I was going to be traveling a lot this year. Of course, that was before COVID hit. And little did I know I'd be staring at those heuchera a lot this year. But I've enjoyed them all the same. But, uh, you know, Mount Cuba over in Delaware, they did a wonderful um, trial of lots of different heucheras within the past five years. And uh, I use their data to help guide me on what heucheras I choose for the conservatory because those heucheras we use in the conservatory will eventually get transplanted into the grounds at Longwood. So, of course, I want to choose something that will be beautiful for my short-term display, but also something that's going to last a long time uh, once it goes outdoors. So this year we're using a golden one, Citronelle, which is fantastic gold for our region. Oh, yeah. I love that one. You can't beat that one. Mm-hmm. favorite for sure uh caramel always a fantastic orange one and spellbound one of my favorite purple ones but they're releasing so many new ones i mean it's almost a full-time job to keep track of the new ones and see which one's going to be better so if you're not sure if you want to make sure you get the best one always check those trial gardens first and that way you can avoid any disappointment mm-hmm. and on our last few minutes together um I want to ask when the foliage drops off all those trees, <laughs> beautiful trees in your garden, and it's the deep of winter, what uh, interest do you look for in the garden? Is it bark? Is it seeds? Where, where's the color in your garden at that point? Oh, unfortunately, you have you've asked the wrong person there because that's when I'm looking on Google Flights and I'm heading off to some other place. <laughs> but this year, I won't be able to do that. So you're right. What am I going to do this winter? Well, fortunately, I have two acres of conservatories at Longwood Gardens, and that is where I get my winter fix. I have to admit, I've never even seen a snowdrop until probably two years ago because I'm like, I don't go outside until like March. So uh, I did have a speaking engagement in Seattle in February. And the snowdrops were gorgeous. So I can see why people love them. But in my garden, what is the joy of winter? It's going to be the colored uh, the colored barks of red twig dogwoods. You know, Longwood did a trial 10 years ago. And red twig dogwoods, you know, they're not just red anymore. They're orange. They're yellow. They're mm-hmm. salmon. They're black. And you can mix those together. And oftentimes I like to plant them in the back 40 because I harvest the stems and then I shove them in my containers at my front door thicker than they would ever be able to grow. So you have a lot of concentrated color. And hey, if you water those containers through the winter, they'll actually sprout in the springtime. And then you've got more that you can plant around your garden. Unless, of course, they're patented, because I would never suggest propagating a patented plant. But these foliage plants of, you know, the colored twig dogwoods, that's my favorite. I absolutely love those things. There's a lot more in the garden that you can appreciate. But for me, I just need that quick fix. Throw some winterberry hollies in there. Put in some colored foliage thuya, osmanthus. Okay, that's a lot more than just uh, dogwoods. But either way, there's tons <laughs> of stuff to keep you satisfied for the winter. I used to create winter containers on my deck every year. And uh, you get great sales on plants in November. The nurseries are trying to dump them for the most part. Buy them for half price. Put them on your deck for the winter. Cydopodes is a fantastic container plant for the winter. I never knew it would survive all winter above ground, but it no problem at all in our region. Then you plant it out in the springtime or you give it away to someone. It's a fantastic gift. Can you imagine giving them an umbrella pine? They're just giddy. And you got to enjoy it for the winter. You have no room for it because you already have five that you had the previous five years. But uh, yeah, I use my containers to, to rotate displays, really. Winter, spring, summer, and fall. So I definitely love the winter season just because of the foliage. Thuyas and junipers and twig dogwoods, Ilex mm-hmm. reticulata. I'm almost excited for winter now. Thanks, Kathy. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great point about the winterberry holly, our native holly. And there's one named for longwood, correct? I do believe. Well, I know we have an Ilex opaca. There's a golden buried mm-hmm. Ilex opaca. I didn't know we had a winterberry for us. Maybe we do. Lord, we've got so much going on at Longwood. I can't keep track of it all. But not just red berries, you know, there's yellow berries, there's salmon berries, and not all the berries last all winter. And that's another thing to keep in mind, too. Not that I'm 
going to talk about native plants, but the big buried winterberry hollies, you know, those are hard for our native birds to eat. Uh, they don't fit in their mouth. So they're great in the garden because they last so long. But if you think that you're helping the wildlife out, you might want to just keep in mind some of the older cultivars with smaller berries are generally better for our, our local birds. Very true. And I think it's not till way late in the winter, maybe even early spring, that they start to ferment enough um, that the wildlife could even uh, consider eating them. Oh, interesting point. I didn't know that those berries would ferment. Maybe I should try that in one of my little cocktail glasses later in the season. Mm, yeah, I don't know <laughs> for the flavor for us humans, but <laughs> the, the robins definitely wait till it's till it's way to the end. How interesting. Well, I'll be appreciating my robins this year as I'm not jet setting off to some warm country. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Um, so any last thoughts on foliage versus flowers or favorites that we didn't mention yet? I literally could go on all my foliage favorites. I have a Flickr page where I've kind of tagged all of my favorite favorite foliage trees. And uh, I have them tagged by reds, golds, silvers, variegated, uh, fastidious, and even weeping. And uh, I'm more than happy to send those Flickr links to anyone. You, of course, can find me on most of these social media outlets just by typing my name in there. And of course, Facebook, Instagram, and Flickr, those are my three social media favorites. And I just love sharing inspiration. And I also love getting inspiration and tips from other people. So um, if there's anything that someone is interested in you know, my experience with, reach out to me. I'm more than happy to share that with you. And let's follow each other on social media and share the, the joy of gardening in the Mid-Atlantic. And for our listeners, um... Do you mind spelling your name out for them? Good point. That's K-A-R-L. And my last name spelled G-E-R-C-E-N-S. And even and easier is just Googling Carl with a K <laughs> at Longwood Gardens. And my name will pop up. Yep. And we'll definitely put a link up in the in the episode um, for directly. Think to your Instagram would probably be the best one, do you think? Oh my gosh. If you want short and sweet, that's what Instagram is for. Okay. Facebook gets a little little deep with all those plants learning about them each and every day. <laughs> but so much fun to take a deep dive into all of that. Well, thank you so much, Carl, for sharing your foliage favorites with us. And I am actually looking forward again to getting into fall to winter transition time um, and seeing what's out there with new eyes. I think it's something we could all use right now is a little freshness, a little open space. So we've all got the outdoors to enjoy. Now's the time to do it for fall foliage. Get outside, get some fresh air. It's good for the soul. Thank you, Carl. Thanks for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Plant Profile, Wild Ageratum Wild Ageratum, or Blue Mist Flower, is an eastern native plant. It is in the aster family and blooms from midsummer through mid-autumn. It prefers full to part sun and is hardy to USDA zones 5 through 10. This plant has an annual look-alike, the short-bedding plant Ageratum. It is also a close relative of common boneset, and is known alternatively as blue bone set. Wild ageratum likes moist, fertile soils and can spread aggressively. It is easy to pull out the rhizomes though, and if reseeding is a concern, remove the spent flower heads before they go to seed. It can grow to two to three feet tall. To prevent flopping and prolong the bloom period, taller plants may be cut back in summer. Pollinators are fond of it, and deer seldom trouble it. Wild ageratum is hard to find at the garden center, but you can try native plant sales or ask for a springtime division from a gardening friend. Wild ageratum 
You can grow that. For this week's What's Blooming in the Garden, I thought I'd share about my favorite ornamental grass, pink muley grass. Muley grass is a tough native ornamental grass that is topped in late summer and fall with fluffy plumes of cotton candy pink. It's airy and beautiful. You can't resist brushing your hands through it as you walk by. It grows to about three feet high and wide. Pink muley makes a great border or edge plant. It combines well with the pink flowering forms of echinacea, sedum, and other ornamental grasses as well. Pink muley is disease and pest resistant. The only maintenance needed is to prune it back to about a foot tall in late winter or very early spring. There's also a white version called white cloud that is equally as stunning and traffic stopping. I have mine planted on my front corner of my driveway because it likes really well-drained soils. So place it on a slope or amend the clay soil if that's uh, your issue. This grass can tolerate drought conditions, high heat, humidity, and nutrient-poor soils. The one thing it does need is full sun, meaning six to eight hours, but it can tolerate part sun. You just won't get as many or um, as colorful as those pink, beautiful plumes. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.